Okay, so if you've got the passage uh, that Robin read for us, uh, that'd be great. Uh, Mark 14, verse 12 to 26. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at his word together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you that your word is true. We thank you that we've already thought about the fact that we submit ourselves to you. We can resist the devil and he will flee away. And we can trust that because you tell us that in your word and your word is true. Help us now as we come to look at this passage together. Speak to us, we pray. Change us, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I don't know how much you are interested in art. Now, it's okay, this is not going to be a big art um, uh, resume or building for different types of art. I got to confess, I did art for as short a time as possible at school. And as soon as I didn't have to do it, I was relieved. However, as most of the things in my life, I realise when I get into my 20s, I suddenly start to become interested a bit in art. And I start thinking to myself, I should have listened at school. And I'd have learnt all this when I was a teenager. Anyway, here's a very famous uh, piece of art, fresco. Leonardo da Vinci's fresco, The Last Supper, is very well known. And of course, it's a great piece of art. His depiction of the Passover meal, the Last Supper, of Jesus and his disciples. And you've got Jesus there in the middle, and he's sorrowful, and the disciples are discussing and arguing. Now, it's a great piece of art, however, and this isn't about me having a go at Leonardo da Vinci and his skills, but he didn't get it completely right. He didn't get it completely right. For example, first of all, they didn't sit. They didn't sit on chairs, they reclined on couches. They laid down with their feet away from the food, thankfully, and their heads near it, and they'd let, lean on an elbow when they'd take the food. So they, they weren't sitting, they, would, they reclined. And they're unlikely to be in a line like this. They'd be around the table. Now, of course, if you, if you ever think about art and think about this painting, this fresco, it's kind of obvious why Da Vinci does this. It's so you can see everybody's face. Yeah? He's not trying to do it literally. However, it wouldn't, they wouldn't have been in a line. They'd have been around the table. So those things aren't quite right about the, uh, the fresco, the painting, the Last Supper. However, that's not the biggest thing that's wrong. That's not the biggest thing that is wrong. Look at Jesus, right in the centre with the blue cloak round him. He'd have probably had a beard, but look at him. He looks weak. He doesn't look like he's in control. It looks like he's despairing. All the others seem okay, but they're reacting, there's some strength there. But Jesus, he just looks weak, passive, not in control. But that's not the view of Scripture. Scripture tells us that Jesus is Lord, he is King, that he rules. And the Passover meal is going on, which is what we read. And the plot to kill Jesus is going on outside the Passover meal. If you remember to when I came here previously, we did the previous passage. And if you look back, that's what's going on. The plan to arrest Jesus is going on while they're eating. But part of what is going on here, and it's a big thing, say part, but it's the big thing I want to think about, is this. Is that Jesus is showing his friends 
And he's showing us that he rules what is going on. He controls the story. He himself is the story. And the previous part of uh, Mark 14, we've got Jesus eating a meal at Simon the leper's house, being worshipped by a woman. And now he's eating again with his disciples, celebrating the central Jewish feast of Passover, celebrating what will be the final meal before the cross. And when we say that, we think, well, that's the end. But of course, the cross is not the end. Because the kingdom of God is going to come. Jesus talks about that. The cross and the empty tomb will make eternity a reality for his people. So what I want us to see this morning is this, is that Jesus invites us to his eternal feast by faith in his sacrificial death. Jesus invites us to his eternal feast by faith in his sacrificial death. First of all, Jesus is prepared. Are you? Jesus is prepared. Are you? If you've ever been to a different place to what you are used to, there's always the question mark, especially if you're not prepared. Where do you stay? Where are you going to eat? You're not at home, you're somewhere else. You've just dropped off the train or wherever. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Where are you going to stay? Where are you going to eat. Well, Jesus and the disciples are in Jerusalem. They're not in Galilee. They're not in their homeland. They're not in the place they're used to. They're in the capital city. And it's the time of the Passover. It's the time of the yearly Jewish meal that is of such tremendous significance to them. So where are they going to eat? And that's what they say to Jesus. In verse 12, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? An immediate thing you might say is, well, hang on, why are they asking Jesus? There's one of Jesus and 12 of them. Why can't they sort it out? Why is it Jesus' problem? Well, Jesus is seen as their leader. Yeah? Kind of, obviously, it makes sense because he is. So he's seen by them as the head of their house. They're not at home, they're out, they're on the, on the road in Jerusalem. So he's seen the, as the head of the house. So Jesus is the one to ask. He's the one who's going to arrange it. He's the one who's going to do, if you like, the Passover. But you see, of course, here, the disciples aren't prepared. Because they could have been prepared. Yeah? If you were going to Jerusalem and they've, they've been there at least a few days, and it's going to be the Passover... You would have thought that some of them might have thought, we're still here. We maybe need to think about the Passover, where we're going to eat it. Maybe we need to make arrangements. Maybe we need to sort it out. But no. They've been too busy enjoying the afterglow of Jesus' triumphal entry. They've been sightseeing around the temple. We know that from Mark 13. But Jesus is prepared. Look at verse 13. He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? See, Jesus is prepared. And then we read on. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. 
See, everything is as Jesus said. He is prepared. Now, what we don't know here is whether Jesus had made already made an arrangement, or he just controls events. You know, just like that. You know, he tells me you're going to find a man, and suddenly a man is there. We don't know. Whichever way it is, the room is prepared. They find the man carrying the water jar, which, of course, would be totally obvious and, and, and um, strange because um, the men didn't carry the water jars. It was a rather sexist, if you like, community. And the women wouldn't carry the water jars. It's the man carrying a water jar. So we don't know. Was it Jesus controlling events? Or was it just prearranged? We don't know. But what we do know is Jesus is prepared. And the room is prepared. And if you know that something is going to happen in your life, and just generally, you get prepared, don't you? You get ready for it. It's the uh, ATP tennis finals this, this week in, in London, I think. And tennis players get prepared. I'm not a big tennis player, but they get their shoes on, tied up. Have you ever seen Rafael Nadal get prepared for, for every single point in tennis? It's all about getting prepared. You get your shoes right, you get your racket right, you get your kit right, you get your sweatbands on, you get your body stretched, you get it all ready for the match, you get it ready for every point. You get prepared. You get ready. And Jesus is prepared for this Passover. He is ready. He's ready for this final meal before the cross. And look at verse 18. You see, he knows it's going to happen. Verse 18, they're reclining at table and eating. Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. He's not only ready for the cross, he's ready to be betrayed. He knows it is going to happen. He knows who is going to do it and he is ready. He is prepared. Now, if you go back in Mark's Gospel, Jesus twice um, talks about being handed over, being portrayed. Chapter 9, verse 31. Chapter 10, verse 33. And then here. And he uses the same word. So if it's different in your Bible, and you look back over Mark, Jesus uses the same word, being handed over, being betrayed. You see, he knows what's going to happen already. He already knew before it was going to happen. And he's ready for it. But look at verse 19. The disciples aren't. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after the other, is it I? And this shouldn't be news. He's told them twice before he's going to be betrayed. But they're not prepared. They're not ready to hear it. And you see, the strange thing, of course, if you look at it, think about it, just off the top of your heads, is that the disciples are Jesus' followers. They've been with him for three years. But they're still not ready. They're not prepared for what Jesus has told them over and over and over again will happen. But you see, how many Christians are not actually prepared for the Christian life? For the ups and the downs, the difficulties, the challenges, for the hard parts of scripture. And how often do we say to God, I'm in this situation, what should I do? And God says, I've already told you what you should do in the Bible. Because we're not prepared. We're not ready. And of course there are times where we don't know what to do. We're not sure what to do. But often, so often we are aware of what we should do. But we're not prepared to do it. We're not ready to do it. We're not ready for what Jesus wants for us. We don't like it. 
Just like the disciples didn't like the fact, probably, that Jesus said he was going to be betrayed, but it goes in one ear and out the other because they didn't like it. But of course, so many people outside of Jesus are unprepared. Not ready. Not ready for Jesus. Not ready for judgment that is coming. And people say, but what about this? What's going on in the world? Or how do you explain this? Or is it really about me? Is this really going to happen? I've got so many other things to sort out. So many people are not prepared to meet Jesus. And the disciples here were not prepared for Jesus to die. And the question for us is not about Jesus dying, it's are we ready for Jesus to return? Are we ready to meet him when he comes back? Jesus is prepared. Are you? Secondly, Jesus sacrifices himself. Do you trust him? Jesus sacrifices himself. Do you trust him? I wonder the last time you were shocked by something. Ah! I'm old enough to remember when the video nasties came out in the late 70s and early 80s and there was a big news thing about them you know with a video recorders and you get these horrendous films coming from America you know, horrific violence and gore etc the video nasty like ah and they get banned and, and you can watch you can watch you can watch films and you get shocked by them but one of the last time you were shocked by something by a film by a news story by something happening in your life it was like like that well, the Bible, interestingly, of course, is not a U-rated book. The Bible is full of shocking things, actually. Particularly if you go back to the Old Testament, there's loads of shocking stuff in it. It's not, it's not you know, and gentle Jesus isn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild. It's real, it's gritty. There's all, all kinds of stuff going on in the Bible that she's shocking. And here, there are some shocking things. 14 verse 21 Jesus says this, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He is going to die. He is going to shed his blood. He is going to have nails through his hands and his feet. He is going to be crucified. It's shocking. But more happens that is shocking. Look at verses 22 to 24. What does Jesus tell the disciples? He says to them, Take... This is my body, and they're eating it. And then he says about um, the cup, he gave it to them, they all drank, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant. He tells the disciples that the bread is his body, and the wine is his blood, and they eat it, and they drink it. He might say, hang on a minute. Are these cannibals? Are these vampires? Because I think sometimes, if we're Christian, and we've read this before, we just go, kind of oh yeah, 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 we know what it says. Look at what it says. It's shocking. Are they cannibals? Are they vampires? Well, they're not. But we've got to understand what is going on with these Jewish people. The Passover meal, which they eat, was all about substitution. And it goes back to when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, 1,500 years before or so. And they ate the bread and the meat. And they put the blood from the meat on the doorposts. So when God passed over their household, the lamb that they slaughtered, which they ate, the blood that was on the doorpost was their substitute. The lamb's blood was shed for them. And when God passes over, he sees it, 
and he passes over. The lamb is their substitute. And you fast forward to the upper room. What is Jesus actually saying here? If we understand that, he's saying that he is the Passover bread. He is the Passover lamb. The food and the drink represent the giving of his life. He is those things. So in a sense, that is why he, when he says that this is my body, it's because he is the Passover lamb who is going to die once and for all. Through the giving of his life. Now I'm always pleased when someone takes the initiative. First of all, because I'm rubbish at taking the initiative. Because I struggle, if you if you throw me a problem, I, I wouldn't know how to solve it. If you came up with some possible solutions, I could find you all sorts of reasons why they're rubbish. Because <laughs> I'm good at what I did as a job for a number of years, come up with finding out the things that are rubbish and sorting them out. But when people take the initiative in church, in life, in family, in work, great. That's what you want, isn't it? We're relieved when someone takes initiative in a situation where we don't know what to do. And Jesus takes all the initiative here. Look at verse 22. Jesus takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. He gives it to them. He tells them, take it. And he takes the cup. And he gives thanks. And he gave it to them. (laughs) Jesus does it. Jesus graciously acts for them at the meal. And he acts because he is going to give himself completely and unreservedly in his offering of himself for them. You see? So it's Jesus who is the centre. Jesus takes the initiative because at the cross, that's what he's going to do for them. And when we read this, we have to address, why is there so much blood? Why is he talking about blood all the time? Why is the Bible so much about blood? Well, there's a coming together of Scripture, of the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New Testament. Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus says, I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. Isaiah 53, verse 12, he bore the sin of many. His blood was poured out for many. And in the old covenant, you'd have a dead animal who was a sacrifice. And in Exodus 24, we're told that the blood of the animal was sprinkled on the Israelites to seal the special relationship God was making with them. So that they knew that that he had rescued them, that they belonged to him. And the new covenant here, which Jesus is instituting, is Jesus himself. No more of these sacrifices. No more lambs and blood on doorposts or whatever. It's Jesus himself. Because through Jesus' blood being poured out, believers are rescued by Jesus. They now belong to him. Protected. Cared for. Secure. Rescued. Forever. And it's by trusting Jesus... By believing that on the cross he did this for you, he did this for me, that we are saved. So the simple question is, do you trust him? Is Jesus the substitute you need? Has he died in your place for you? See, Jesus sacrifices himself for us. So are you prepared? Do you trust 
Jesus, finally, Jesus invites you to his eternal feast. Will you be there? Jesus invites you to his eternal feast. Will you be there? (coughs) Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard. And he was called a glutton and a drunkard because he went to dinner parties. He was asked to go and he went along. And he got a reputation for being a glutton and a drunkard. He ate with sinners and they said he is a glutton and a drunkard. He stuffed himself with food and he drinks too much wine. Now of course then that's not true. He didn't stuff himself with too much food and he didn't drink too much wine. But you know, you get a label, it sticks. That's what they said, the glutton and the drunkard. In the Passover meal, if you analyse it, what they were to do, you might think that all the Jews and particularly the disciples and Jesus here were gluttons and drunkards. Because there were four cups of wine to be drunk. They'd drink the first cup before the eating of the lamb. They'd then eat the lamb. They'd drink the second cup after eating the lamb. They'd then eat bread. They'd drink the third cup after eating the bread. They'd then sing Psalm 116, 117 and 118. And then they'd drink the fourth cup after the song. Quite a big feast, isn't it? Quite a bit of a ding-dong. You can see why people think, might think that he's a glutton and a drunkard. So why mention that? Well, look at well, verse 18. We have them between cups 1 and 2 eating. It seems to think they're eating the lamb. Then in verse 22, we have between cups 2 and 3 taking the bread. 24 to 25, we have them drinking the third cup. Verse 26, when they have sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's probably Psalm 116 to 118. And then cup four. Oh. Jesus and the disciples never drink cup number four. See that? They sing the hymn, which is Psalm 116, 117, 118. They go out to the Mount of Olives and they never drink cup number four. They never finish the Passover meal. Why? They could have done, couldn't they? Why didn't they finish it? Well, look at verses 24 and 25. Jesus said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This is cup number three. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You see, the third cup represents his blood shed for them at the cross. And Jesus is saying the fourth cup, the final cup, is the cup of celebration. It's the cup of celebration. See, the Passover feast has ended, but it's incomplete because the blood of the covenant has not yet been poured out. The kingdom of God has not yet come in all its fullness. Jesus is going to return. He's going to take his people to himself. He's going to rejoice over the wedding feast of the Lamb and the church, the eternal banquet in the new creation. The Passover feast is over, but there's an eternal feast to come. So Jesus is going to wait. Cup number four is going to happen when he returns and the wedding feast happens because the Passover will then be complete. The Passover lamb will have done all of his work and brought all of these people to himself at the eternal feast. And the question is, 
Will you be there? Will you be there? See, the disciples shared the Passover feast with Jesus. Yet their failures, if you read on, you find that they run away. They're going to have to repent and be restored. Judas is here at this meal and he betrays Jesus. He never repents and he is never restored. But you see, just think back to the, the 11 disciples who do repent. We see something of the grace of Jesus, the grace of the table. The eternal feast will be tasted by failures. It will be tasted by failures. Failures who Jesus has restored, Jesus has redeemed, Jesus has transformed. And you and I are failures. We might achieve all sorts of stuff in this life. We might have wonderful homes and wonderful families. We might have wonderful churches, wonderful businesses, wonderful clothes, wonderful circle of friends. But in our hearts we know we've all messed up. We've all failed. We've all let Jesus down. We've all let our families down. We've all let our businesses down, etc., etc. Nobody's perfect. And we're all failures. But you see, Jesus knows that. He's got 11 people around him, and he knows exactly what they're going to do. He knows that Peter's going to deny him. He knows they're all going to run away. He knows they're going to leave him. But he's not going to leave them. Because it's the grace of the table. The eternal feast will be tasted by failures. But look at what Jesus says about Judas in verse 21. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You see, Judas is outside of this wonderful grace. He faces hell because he does not trust in Jesus. He's not ready to meet Jesus. He will not be at the eternal feast. We've probably all had invitations at some point for something. Weddings, parties, whatever. You're invited and you get the, the text in size and it tells you the date and where it's going to be. And that's wonderful. But if we're honest, you sometimes get invitations where you don't really want to go. Have you ever had one of those? You don't have to confess it now. I have. I've had invitations to certain things. Not many where you think, do I really have to go to that thing? Do I really have to go and see those people? Do I really have to go and make polite conversations with people who I really don't want to be polite to? You know, and you think, sometimes you think, oh, what excuse can I come up with? And the reality is you still go, don't you? Because you've been invited. Invitations. Do you really want to go? Well, Jesus invites you this morning. He wants you to be prepared to meet him. He wants you to be ready. He wants you to trust in his sacrifice for your salvation. He wants you to join him when he drinks the final cup at the eternal feast. He wants you there. But do you want to be there? Do you want to be there? See, Jesus invites us to his eternal feast by faith in his sacrificial death. Now, if you're a Christian, you're looking forward to Jesus returning, 
You ready for him? Longing for your saviour to come? Is that you? Well, praise the Lord if that's you. Because he is going to come. He is going to bring in the eternal feast. He will drink the final cup then forever with you and with me. But if you're not a Christian, you need to be ready to meet Jesus. You need to trust him to take away all of your sin, all of your failings, all the things you've done wrong. And you need Jesus' grace to do do everything for you so you can join him at the eternal feast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that Jesus was prepared, that he was ready to go to the cross and rise from the dead for us. We thank you that when Jesus died, he was our substitute. He sacrificed himself for us, people who are failures, so that we can trust in him and be forgiven. And we thank you that there is an eternal feast to come when Christ returns, when he brings all of his people together, When all of the work is done, Lord God, I pray that all of us here will be ready to meet Jesus, trusting in him and looking forward to joining him in that eternal feast. And we pray it in his name. Amen.